Welcome to America on Wheels presents the podcast that drives into America's automotive culture. Welcome to the first episode of America on Wheels Presents Podcast. We recorded this episode live at the America on Wheels Museum in Allentown, PA. Now, to give those of you who are unfamiliar with our museum some context as to this lovely place and what it's all about, the Lehigh Valley has a rich automotive history. It's the home to Mack Trucks, it's the home to the NB Center for American Automotive Heritage, and the Historical Vehicle Association just opened an office here. Lee Iacocca, Roger Penske, Al Holbert are all Lehigh University alums, and there is a ton more history in our area. The museum highlights this rich history and works with the wonderful organizations here in the Valley to entertain and educate through their diverse automotive exhibits and events like our current Pony Cars exhibit, featuring the oldest known unrestored Mustang and the Mustang 2 concept car. With this podcast, we want to share with you our in-depth conversational interviews with collectors, visionaries, technologists, industry insiders, just those who are deeply involved with anything with wheels and in America. In this episode, we dive into the integration of autonomous vehicles into our everyday life. We cover where we truly stand at this point in time when it comes to self-driving cars, and we separate facts from clickbait and media fluff. We talk about the similarities with the adoption of the automatic elevators, and we answer some very thoughtful questions from our live audience. I also want to thank Highline Imports from Easton PA for sponsoring this podcast and loaning us a Tesla Model S to play with for the weekend. I want one. Highline is an automotive toy store here in the Lehigh Valley, where they ship cars all over the world. Check out your favorite car at HighlineImports.com. And now, without further ado, America on Wheels presents the future integration of autonomous vehicles with Dr. Vlad Pop. All right, just want to thank you guys again for coming out for the first uh, installment of America on Wheels presents. It's a uh, monthly speaker series that we're going to host here at the museum with different professionals in the auto industry. And today we are talking about the future integration of autonomous vehicles with Dr. Vlad Pop. He is a research scientist, too, in human systems engineering at Georgia Tech. And, uh, you know, I've known Vlad here for about seven years, and I had no idea what he actually did until recently. And uh, we're both in the auto industry pretty uh, heavily. So, uh, Vlad, what exactly is a research scientist, too, in human systems engineering? And uh, what's your uh, day-to-day look like? Sure. Well, thank you for the introduction. So, I'm actually part of the... GTRI, which is the Applied Research Arm of Georgia Tech, and we do contract work um, focusing on the integration of new technologies into human systems. So I actually started with a lot of work in the aviation industry. Um, One of the big upcoming integrations there is in 2025, the entire national airspace is going from radar to GPS-based, and so you get a whole nother level of technology in the cockpit. Um, now planes can see each other, actively avoid each other, a whole other level um, of safety in, av- in aviation. And so what we were tasked to do, um, we did a lot of work for the FAA, was to make sure that the user interfaces and this technology was usable uh, both by airline pilots and also the air traffic controllers as their jobs changed and a lot of the more manual tasks that they did went to fully automated. So that's where we started, um, and now as things are developing, you're hearing it everywhere, self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles. Now these levels of um, 
automation that we once only saw in airplanes are coming to passenger vehicles. Um, and that's both exciting and scary. And so um, what we do is ensure that the systems themselves, the user interfaces, um, can support safely going into these systems. You know, you talk about the aviation industry and it, you know, autonomy being scary. I drove this uh, Tesla Model S out here over and um, I was a little nervous to actually engage the autonomous system in it, you know, not knowing exactly what it's going to do. And I kind of assumed, you know, the level of autonomy it had. You know, I thought it was like a level three autonomous vehicle and apparently it's not. So I don't know if you can go through for me the different levels. I guess it's a zero through five rating scale Mm -hmm. in the automotive industry. Yep. Um, so the scale is based on SAE International. Um, the DOT had its own scale, but adopted this one. So basically at level zero, you've got full manual driving that we're all very used to. Um, when we start talking about automation level one, it's taking one aspect of the driving task and automating it. So a really good example of this is uh, radar-based cruise control um, that could automatically slow down even to a complete stop to the car in front of you and then take you back up to highway speed. So that would be a level one system helping you drive. Um, when we start talking about level two is two of the functions of driving are done by the system. So a good example of this is, you know, again, the radar-based um, distance and now we add lane keep assist. So the car actually keeps itself in the lane and does your steering for you. Um, when you've got two of these, that's level two. And so notice that these first two levels, we're talking about you driving and the car helping you. Um, when we go up from there, now we start talking self-driving car. And that's when the vehicle itself is responsible for monitoring the environment, fully driving itself. Um, the first level we get to there is level three. And at level three, the car essentially tries to drive itself, and when it can't, it says, help me, and then you have to retake control. Um, that That is the scariest, because this is a level of autonomy that doesn't involve you having to pay attention. Um, and then all of a sudden, in a situation the car can't handle with very little notice, you have to, you're expected to take back control and safely operate the vehicle. Um, the next level up from that is when you don't have to intervene. Um, the car is self-driving in... Specific environments, so a good example would be um, on the highway. So maybe it only works there um, or only in certain areas where the roads have been mapped. The car is fully self-driving. And then we get to level five, which is full everywhere. Um, we don't need a steering wheel in the car. It just does everything. And so what's interesting is right now what's on the market they're all level twos, the highest we've gotten to. Um, we're on the cusp of level three. Uh, we keep being promised that it's almost out. Um, and that's interesting because some automakers have chosen to skip that entirely. Um, so there's kind of two camps. One is incremental development. You know, we'll keep adding functionality until we get to the full system. Others are saying there's no way it can be safe to expect a human operator to, you know, from not paying attention, safely take back control. So, for example, Ford said they're not going to do level three and go straight to level four. Um, but what happens, we'll see. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified to uh, take my hands off the wheel in the Tesla. Um, you know, that anxiety of trying something new for the first time, new technology. Last night we were talking about how it happened with something that we take for granted, like we've used today, an elevator. Um, how it took 50 years between a fully operating elevator could operate itself and people would actually utilize it. I right. you can talk about that a little bit more. Sure. So, I mean, when elevators first came around, right, it required a very skilled operator. They had, you know, 
levers to go up and down. You had to stop at floors, open the doors. And then the first automatic elevator, as we would ride in today, was actually developed in 1904. And it was started being implemented in 1925. And people would get to these elevators, the doors would open, um, and they were afraid to get on. Where's the operator? What's it going to do? And it wasn't until 1950s where these became commonly accepted. So it's something as simple as an elevator took 50 years after its invention for people to fully trust it um, and use it. And so when you start talking about something that doesn't just go up and down, um, you know, for people to fully believe in it. And what's interesting is we see in aviation, we've got these levels of automation for a long time. And there's a lot of situations in which the pilot thinks the automation is going to do something and then takes back control or thinks it's going to do something and it doesn't do it. So you have these highly skilled operators uh, making assumptions about what the automation is or isn't going to do. So for you to trust that, you know, the car sees the car in front of me, it's going to move out of the way. It's going to stop and not, you know, freaking out and taking back control. And so then you start asking questions about, you know, how much is this increasing safety and what are kind of unforeseen circumstances of you interacting with the automation. So we've had fully autonomous planes, the capability at least, since 1972. But yet we still have pilots in the seats. Um, why is that? So, um, yeah. So the first autopilot was came out in the 20s. And you know we've gotten really good at increasing that capability. 1972 is when it, um, we had advanced microprocessors and the plane could fully drive itself or fly itself in all aspects of flight, take off, taxi, land. Um, and then we still had, we had three people in the cockpit. It was pilot, co-pilot, and engineer. And it took many years to go down to two. Um, and what's interesting is that the plane isn't allowed to do all of that right now per FAA regulations, not because it can't, but you can't turn on vertical autopilot navigation until you're above 500 feet, for example. And they do that for insurance and public perception pretty much. So would you feel comfortable getting on an airplane with no pilots who would ensure this? Um, and so for that very reason, we've still got two pilots. Quite recently, they're thinking about going down to one, and that doesn't look very good either. It's just looking at the workload. So for the foreseeable long future, you're going to have a pilot. And so what's going to happen with cars? You know, Even when we have these levels of automation, uh, can we truly expect them to go around without a driver? And who's going to insure them? And, yeah, some big questions. So, like, insurance and legislation, lobbying, you know, I think the technology is obviously going to be there. You know, it was in planes since 1972. We're seeing rapid advancement in technology in the automotive sector. But there's so many other things in the way of getting to that level four and level five. What do you see as being the biggest roadblock from that happening? Um, so legislation has done a good job of trying to stay out of the way. So um, allowing development, allowing testing. Um, we'll have to definitely refine that as we actually get these cars interacting with each other and people around them. Um, I think one of the biggest problems is going to be integrating these, um, ensuring them. How, how does it work? Where are they allowed to drive like this? Where are they not? And I think the integration aspect is going to be hard. So, like, widespread adoption-wise, um, moving through, like, a buying cycle of the cars. So, you know, we're seeing level two autonomy in higher-end cars. Like, 
the Tesla out there is a hundred thousand dollar car with level two autonomy. Uh, Mercedes S Class has that as well. And with these cars on the road, do you, how are they going to integrate into the cars that are not autonomous? Um, you know, it's potential for abuse. We talked about okay, you're in a, you're driving your Tesla along, and you've got your cruise control set for two cars in front of you. Somebody knows you're autonomously driving. How it, somebody cuts in that two rows, the Tesla goes back another two, leaves another two spaces in front of you. The next guy cuts in. We all drive 78 every day. Um, next thing you know, you're in a Tesla going backwards. So how does this potential for people to come around and abuse your autonomous driving um, integrate into day-to-day life? You know, is that going to be another roadblock you know, that, the, that the research scientists are going to come across? And how where are they going to put their logic in that? Yeah, and I think the key word is logic because that's the hard part. It's just the way we drive is not textbook. Um, the way we follow four-way stops is not how it is in the DMV manual. And so accounting for that, there's a fine line between the safety of a vehicle, um, it's actually going to stop in time, and one, also not scare you while it does it, and being taken advantage of. So I drive in Atlanta every day, and always when merging onto the interstate, you know, there's somebody, you're waiting in a long line of cars, and always, without fail, somebody flying up and cutting in at the last minute at the head of the line. And so if you can spot which car is autonomous, and you know it's going to let you in every time because it's programmed to do that, it's not going to hit you, then you really do open up the possibility for abuse, right? I'm going to cut that car off 10 out of 10 times. And so, you know, when you've got one or two, yeah, but it's not that big of a problem. It's an inconvenience for you. But then what happens when you've got, you know, three or four of them and how do they give each other space? And there's a lot that the technologies, you know, you can design it and it works in your test settings, but then release it into the wild and see how people take advantage of it. And so we call this, you know, automation abuse. And you see that sometimes even in aviation of relying on automated systems when you're not supposed to. Um, and, using it to cut corners, but you open that up to driving and uh, who knows what will happen. Or even human interaction, uh, the car interacting with a human. How do you, if I'm crossing the street and I see an autonomous vehicle, I'm just going to cross the street. I know it's going to stop. I'm going to feel safe like that. Um, you know, or how does a computer allow that person to cross the street or wave another car through, you know, so there are a lot of aspects of driving, if you think, that are very social that we do that's not car-related. So you could kind of see when you come up to, for example, a uh, intersection, who's paying attention. Like, you make eye contact before going through a four-way stop. You could see, you know, who's going to – if somebody waves you in, if you wave somebody else in. If you're a pedestrian, you can see if the driver sees you. If they're looking at you, you can kind of expect if they're going to stop. So what happens when you take out that, you know, you take out the driver? How do we communicate things like that between the car and the outside world? And so there's some concepts for that into, you know, all the way from one of the Mercedes concepts had a crosswalk projecting in front of the car, letting you know as a pedestrian, like, this car sees me, I can go ahead and cross. Um, but then how does it talk to other cars? Um, the, the, one of the first versions of Google's self-driving car couldn't, get through four-way stop signs, it kept getting stuck because uh, just the way we don't follow the rules, we don't wait our turn, and people would inch up, the car would think they're going to cross the line, and it wouldn't go through, and they had to adjust their logic over several cycles and make it more aggressive um, to be able to just go through a four-way stop, and it's, 
you know, that's one example that they found, and it hasn't even been widely implemented yet. So who knows how many other, you know, instances we have where this could happen. And Google, as you said, have been doing autonomous driving, collecting data for 20 years. Yeah. So they've got probably a head start compared to all these other companies that are coming out. A few moments ago before here, we were online and some, another company is using Grand Theft Auto 6 to help with their logic. Um, who's going to eventually come out and like regulate this to say, okay, Mercedes has the best logic out here. Tesla has the best logic. The Grand Theft Auto 6 company, their last is, you know, what's the talk around certification for these processes? So I think the certification is a big problem because we all take a driver's license test, right? So how, who certifies that the car is good enough to drive itself and in what situations? And we don't know how to answer that question yet. Um, but to get to your point about each individual's car's behavior, I think that becomes a strong part of the car's brand and image. And there's a reason you buy a certain car um, and maybe the stereotypes around it. So maybe you can imagine that brand A might cut you off a little sooner or <laughs> white BMW drivers. Yeah, I didn't say it, uh, but <laughs> three series. Yeah. So they're all different approaches, right? And there's not one's better than the other. And I think a lot of that is, you know, how do you, how do you want to be driven? Right. It's like, do you want to be cut off all the time? Or maybe, you know, you don't want it to um, stop hard. You want a comfortable ride. And so it's kind of really depends on the person in it. Well, you have with like, so many different logics out there. So you have your Mercedes logic, you have your Tesla logic. We're going to keep the Grand Theft Auto guys out of the picture. Um, Volkswagen's logic as well. And you have all these in the row on a highway. And you throw in a deer. All of these different cars are each going to react differently to that deer. You know, is it just going to be absolute chaos on the road? Or will they all be able to safely avoid it without hitting each other? You know, you see pla- the planes, and they're 2,000 feet between each other. Mm-hmm. Well, cars were inches away from each other. You know, is it going to be able to react that quick and also react to the logic of the next car, of the car next to it? So that's a, also a very big unanswered question. Uh, it's vehicle-to-vehicle communication. Um, certain automakers are starting to answer that question within their own brand, right? So I know all of my cars can be aware of each other. I know how they're going to behave. Now, what the systems are, you know, can brand A talk to brand B? Um, and it's a good question that we haven't gotten enough development to know if, if it is compatible and if so, how and who's going to work together and do that. Um, but we'll just have to see. You know, if I guess you have one camp who thinks this is going to happen in the next four or five years, the next camp, 10 years, 15, 25. In the industry, where do you see level three happening? Where do you see level five happening, becoming you know, adopted by the majority? Um, or is level five, are we just a pipe dream? Are we going to remove steering wheels, remove driver controls? Is it actually going to happen? If it happens in a geofence territory? Good question. So when Google first started, all of their concepts had, you know, they wanted to take the steering wheel out of the car. And it's almost like the elevator that can go anywhere. Um, and as development has gone on, they're now Waymo and they're, you know, working with um, FCA. It's interesting to see that they kind of backed away from that. So that 
no steering wheel is this level five autonomy. And right now, no one's pushing for that. What a lot of people, when they say, you know, we'll have a self-driving car out by, most car companies are saying 2020, 2021, what they mean is this level four, which is it can drive itself in some situations, some areas, maybe on the highway. Um, but level three is kind of incremental. We don't know where that is yet. What's interesting is you've got, you know, manufacturers, um, promising this. And then you've got the opinions of suppliers like Bosch, Mobileye, NVIDIA, the actual, the cameras, the microprocessors that can actually run all this data. And what's interesting is they project the longer timeline. So for example, Bosch is one of the largest suppliers, especially throughout Germany, where a lot of these concepts are coming from as well. And, you know, their estimate for this level four, level five autonomy is 2025. So it could be in the next couple of years. Uh, it could not be. And you balance that against uh, Tesla promises they'll have full self-driving capability in the next three to six months. And this was said in January. And so it could be, you know, ready now. I mean, all the sensors are there. All the um, algorithms are being developed. But they're anticipating problems with regulation and actually, you know, being able to be allowed to roll this out to the fleet. I think a lot of the problem, too, is going to be adaptability. Because like I said in the beginning, the anxiety I had just switching on, hitting that button for autopilot, I guess it's kind of akin to the first time jumping on the elevator and walking in there and seeing nobody inside. Um, it's got to be very weird. Um, you know, I guess you've interviewed with our companies before about heading the programs in order to get somebody comfortable behind, sort of behind the wheel of a level four car. So we saw this in aviation when some of the more advanced autopilots first came out. Um, for it to actually increase safety, there's still a human operator that has to turn it on and use it properly and then you know turn it off, regain control when needed. And the benefits of the automation itself is kind of limited to how often you use it and when. And so what we found is that People use automation they trust, right? And if you don't trust that it's going to do a good job and I can do it better, then you don't use it. And so that's one of the big questions with technology like this, especially in cars. If I keep expecting it to disengage, right, I'm going to have to take back control. I'm just not going to use it. And so we work on um, clear communication of what the car is going to do um, and communicating that to you, I think, one of the first times you turn on autopilot, you kind of do like the, the hover hands. You know, is it going to steer around this turn or am I going to go off the road? When you do that, it's not like a lot of times we automate to make things easier and this is making it more stressful. And so you really got to have, you got to build that trust. Um, and that really depends on the capabilities of the system and how well it communicates with you what it's about to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll be doing the uh, hover hands later this afternoon. Um, quick question for the audience. Who here would ever get on an airplane without a pilot? We got three. All right, three out of like 20 people that are in here. Um, how about who here would get into an Uber without a driver? All right, now we're at five. <laughs> so we're at five out of 20 people. So, you know, what's the process to get 20 out of 20 people here, you know, ready to get into that Uber without a driver? We met a guy from uh, Pittsburgh here earlier who in Pittsburgh, Uber is currently testing level four autonomous vehicles. And he just refuses to get in one. It's just not for him. Um, you know, are they driving around by themselves just trying to collect data? You know, what's that process going to be like to get us all comfortable doing this? Yeah. I'm not doing it. <laughs> so a lot of the 
the studies, like the opinion polls kind of echo what you said. A lot of people are scared, apprehensive. You've got you know, people that are early adopters that will try it. But most of the public is, you know, cautious of it, may or may not use it. And what's interesting when you study the trust relationship with automation, at least as we have in aviation, that it really develops kind of like human-to-human trust. And so every time, you know, when you're building that relationship, every time you give control to the automation, it's a there's a risk for you, right? Is it going to do a good job? Is this going to work out okay? And every time it does, you build a little more trust in the system, right? So you do that enough times and you say, okay, you know, this system's dependable. The same way as you first, when you first meet somebody, you might be a little bit more cautious what you trust them with and the things you have them do. And over time, as they, you know, do a good job, good performance, you would increase your trust in that person. And it's interesting, we see the same thing with automation. So kind of the longer pilots have been using automation and that it worked correctly, then you have higher levels of trust. Um, and so to get 20 out of 20 people to, you know, hop on, on in a self-driving car would, would take a lot of uh, time of, you know, riding in it and having it do a good job and it's safe and you've got to see the benefits of it. Um, and it really... Every time something doesn't go well, then you lose a lot of the trust in the system. So it's very heavily dependent on, you know, how well is this automated? Um, how safe is it? And how much, you know, do I trust it? Okay. I don't right now. But that's another story for another time. You know, just, I do. I'm, I'm one of the, I do think the adoption is going to be the biggest hurdle that the self-driving car companies have. And I think it's a long, long way out there, you know. And it kind of seems like the companies you're seeing inside the companies themselves, like Uber, for example, was we'll keep it with them. Um, you know, they just lost their latest executive um, that was heading their self-driving unit mm-hmm. as of last week. So he's gone. So do you think all these dreamers are starting to wake up to more of a reality where this is a lot farther out? This is farther out than I have cash in the bank with this company at the moment. I don't know if it's a cash thing or what it is, but I think what a lot of the companies are finding out that the big, the big component in rolling this out is data. And so the way these systems work is they have to learn, um, from sensors data and compare it to like when you're driving, what do you do? What would it have done? And kind of learn how to drive and navigate certain areas. And that takes a lot of driving. And so that's why, you know, Google's been in this a long time collecting that data. Uh, One of the big advantages Tesla has is before they rolled out autopilot, all these sensors and all that were already in their cars. So they were getting free data from everyone driving their cars around, you know, helping their algorithms learn. And they compared, you know, what did the human driver do um, and what would the car have done if it was in self-driving mode? And then over time, these things get better because of that data. And so it's hard when you don't have a way of collecting it now. It's, you know, you're kind of limited by how much you can drive and how many of your own vehicles you have. And so, you know, however many self-driving cars Uber has, like that's kind of their limit, right? And so just the model for how you train these systems, um, requires data and a lot of planning to get it. So they'll have a Pittsburgh down pat, but that's about it. All right. Um, so I kind of want to go back to the Tesla again, driving it over here. You know, I assumed it had level three. I guess level three currently does not exist at all. What is it in that car that is, you know, keeping me in the lane, keeping me from hitting the car in, fr- in front um, and steering through the turns like what systems does it have lidar is not in cars yet 
It's not production. So not production. So when you say system level three doesn't exist, it's not out to production. So you see okay. a lot of the cars are manufacturers are testing. They're actually working on level four already. Um, but the no, none of that technology has made it into production vehicles yet. So the Tesla you're talking about, um, all of that vision for the lane keeping comes through a camera um, that is up by the rearview mirror. And what this does is it uses vision algorithms to um, recognize road markings, the, the lane lines, and do that. Um, a lot that is assisted with all the ultrasonic like park sensors, and it's got radar for the distance. So it knows where things are around you. Um, there's been the, kind of the next level up from that is uh, LiDAR, which is using light. It's very... Um, fast mapping image technology, which allows the car to kind of remap 360 its environment around it. Um, and that has been kind of the sticking point for level three, because right now that is very expensive to do. And so if you ever see concepts of these self-driving cars, you've got these big old towers at the top. And what those um, entail are these things spinning around, mapping the environment around it. And so that has been the question, can you do higher levels of automation without these systems, which are very expensive right now? And so you've got the Tesla camp, which says you don't need it. And so it'd be very interesting to see um, what this full driving capability that's supposedly coming out soon, how that works without that system. Um, but, you know, having multiple cameras, redundant system definitely helps. Um. I think even the camera placement on the Tesla, you know, we were talking earlier, you're driving and you're looking so far down the road. You're not looking at the car in front of you like the camera is. Um, do you think they're going to advance, look, put the cameras a little bit higher, keep them low so that they can see further in front of you um, to see, okay, if there's five cars up, that car just spun, I'm going to react to that car versus reacting to the four car back to the one right directly in front of me? So a lot of those systems now, their advanced driver support systems, are using radar to do that. So that's how I could see kind of through the car in front of you. Uh, there's a really cool video of, it's a Model X on the interstate, and you know, you're driving along and the video's from inside the car and it just beeps at you and you know, the person, the driver stop, starts stopping and then you see the car in front of it, ran the car in front of that one. So the car could see there was a, a crash in front of the large SUV in front of that. And, you know, and a lot of that is done through radar. Um, now, was that on a production vehicle though? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so um, it kind of depends. You're, you're limited by physically where you, you can put the sensors. If you see a lot of the prototypes now, they've got these big old cones on the roof. Um, basically what manufacturers are doing, like the self-driving Ford Fusions, for example, um, they, you know, it's the regular version with these LiDAR sensor suites up top. And hope I really do hope because I love cars, love the way they look. Um, yeah, I think eventually we'll incorporate some of these technology pieces into the design styling and it won't look just like a big cone on top of the car. Um, wearing but, a terrible hat. Well, you, yeah, yeah. You're limited, right, by where you can put it, and that really impacts performance. So it'd be very interesting to see how car design changes uh, its shape as these sensors come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So design-wise, so we were upstairs earlier looking at the uh, Carl Renner pieces, and you know he was the, the futurist designer for GM, and in every single one of those future vehicles, there was still a driver. Um, and you, also, you mentioned another piece, uh, I don't know the artist, but it's where the family's playing Scrabble inside the car. Mm-hmm. And when that came out. So, you know, as humans are always looking for the future, having an opinion of the future, the future of self-driving, you know, actually getting to that level five where there's no steering wheel, no engagement. Um, 
is it possible? Well, I think that's a good lead with into legislation and whatnot. Well, it's a good lead into why why do we automate things in the first place, right? It's we're buying these cars, and so why do we why do we want self driving features? Why do we want this capability? Um, there's no doubt that it will increase safety greatly. The question of the steering wheel versus not, I mean, we're still consumers. You buy, you know, I love driving. You know, I could not imagine buying a car without a steering wheel, but that's kind of up to us. I think anybody in here can. (laughs) Yeah, well. um, But then, you know, it's good to take a step back and say, like, why automate in the first place? So in aviation, we did that for efficiency. Um, The plane's autopilot systems are much better at calculating the exact angle and speed the airplane lands at um, so that it can stop safely before the end of the runway without putting its um, jet engines in reverse, which costs airline companies a lot of money, right? And so increasing efficiency, increasing safety. Um, Where do you draw the line between that and cars? I mean, there's definitely the camp of we're going to take away your steering wheel, uh, but then there's also the idea of, you know, how much different is it than cruise control when that first started coming out? Like, you get the choice of when you want to use that or not, right? And, and so then you start adding radar to it. Now you're adding lane keep assist. And then, you know, if you treat your self-driving car features like that, it's more like up to you when and how you use them. Um, I think that is more of a realistic model. It's kind of like, you know, there are definitely times I don't want to drive. And I would love to just, you know, <laughs> let the car do it or watch it. And there are other times where, you know, it's the weekend. Like, let's go drive. And so um, it's up to, I guess, manufacturers and cars to figure that out. And, I mean, that's a big part of your branding. Or, you know, it's what, what car can do that and how. And there's a whole other side to this technology um, that it can not, not just take away your driving for you, but actually, like, help you be a better driver. So one of the first um, instances of high automation for BMW, they had this, um, it was for track use. And the car knew its limits with all these actuators, and it would, you know, figure out the best line and help teach you to be a better, faster driver using this technology. Um, you know, and they were first started talking about how it would go into, you know, BMW is the ultimate driving machine. So how are we going to have this technology? They were thinking about, like, what if the car could help you drift? Like, that's something, I'm, you know, I can't do as it is. So you have the possibility of using sensors like this, technology like the same algorithms, right, to just change the dynamics of the car you know, get you closer to the edge um, without having, you know, traction control kick in. So there's a lot of possibilities, and it's not all, you know, let's it's make elevators self-driving. go anywhere. It's let's make the driver a better driver. Let's help them be more aware of their surroundings. Let's help them navigate, you know, kind of like in how in airplanes, some of the autonomy there, it won't let the airplane go past its limits. So are right. we going to have better drivers because of this technology – but does that really just stop at level two autonomy? Yeah, um, interesting question. I think it really depends on the branding and what, you know, why are you buying this car? It's, a, it's your decision, right? And so it kind of depends on the ability to do that. In aviation, we have two big players. It's Boeing and Airbus. And what's interesting is they have very different automation philosophies. So um, Airbus is the more, you know, heavily automated one. And what you were referring to up to the limits is called its protection envelope. So Airbus airplanes will not let the pilot take them past safe. It won't stall out. It won't let you stress the fuselage where it might crack. 
That's very different than the Boeing approach. The Boeing approach is it'll warn you, but if you still need to do that, it would um, let you act. And so, you know, when it comes to things like speeding, things like that, you know, are you looking at cars that warn you that you, this is above or not let you do it? They highly suggest to highly not go suggest, above the right? speed and, limit. And so it kind of depends on what the approach is. Like, what's the restriction? Is it you or the automation? And what's interesting is, You've got pilots that have been flying their, their whole lives. They're, you know, when you're in one camp, like that's the camp you're in. And so it'd be interesting to see how auto manufacturers, how that works. Yeah. I just think you'll see a lot of what's happening in aviation industry trickle down through the autonomous version of the auto industry in a similar fashion. Well, it's, you know, the best thing we have to look to as an example. And we've got 50 years of research, 50 years of experience of, you know, heavily automated use. Um, and so there's definitely new problems we're going to find, but there's also a lot of things that we've already found, already learned, uh, that can be gleaned from it. So there's kind of a fine line between what we can take, but it's it's the best we've got to look at. Yeah. Okay. Um, still with aviation. I think I want to talk about the time you met um, Chelsea Sullenberg, Sully, and you know he, the talk he gave and his take on autonomy versus driver's aids right so yeah captain sully did he did an opening at the human factors conference we go through every year and he had a very interesting take on automation because you know all the things about safety you know it's a nice reminder of it is a system and you you know can you have your own senses and your own training and so he you know during his talk attributed a lot of the action um of what happened when he went on Hudson, what came from his military aviation training. And so what we see with a airline pilots is through so much automation use um, that you see skill decay. And the FAA knows this is a problem. This is something they monitor a lot. And so, you know, for that reason, pilots have to manually land like one out of every three flights um, if all weather conditions are perfect. Uh, so if there's rain or fog, they let the systems do it themselves. But they kind of force themselves to do this. And you can, you, you could kind of tell when those are, because those are the rougher landings. Um, but, you know, they have to do that, right? Because, you know, these systems fail. And so well, they have to take back control. And how do you maintain um, that skill? And so you start talking about driving. It's, you know, it takes years of experience, right, to build that up. And if, how often you're doing that and how often you're letting the system drive, if you do have to intervene, when you do that, you know, it's, could you start skiing um, skill decay problems there? Well, some people just don't have skill to begin with behind the wheel. Yeah. All right. I guess right now I'd like to open up the floor to any questions that you would have around autonomous vehicles or even uh, aviation and how it's going to trickle down here into uh, our daily lives driving. You know, we're a bunch of sports car and classic car nuts here in this uh, building right now. So I would like to take an autonomous vehicle someday, but I don't know if I'm there yet. So feel free to fire away. The microphone is right up here. Hi, I'm Becky Bradley. I'm the executive director of the Lehigh Valley Planning Commission, and we're responsible for all of the region's transportation planning as well as land use planning in our region. And we're in the process of updating our regional comprehensive plan right now. One of the things that we've been talking about since it's a 2040 plan is how will vehicle autonomy affect how we use land, how we 
basically behave in the public realm. Do we need as much parking today as, as um, uh, uh, we do now? And should we be turning on street, thinking about turning on street parking spaces into drop off and loading zones and those sorts of, of things? Um, in your experience, uh, have you had started to have these conversations? Do you know what other people are doing in these regard? Um, I know it's kind of an emerging, emerging topic on the things that happen outside of the vehicle itself. Yeah. So there's been a lot of talk for less parking needed. Um, I'll give you one good example. Georgia Tech charges $756 a year to park your car on campus. Wow. wow. My driveway's free. <laughs> so it's like, you know, if, you know, what, could you drive to work, have your vehicle go back home, sit in your driveway, pick you up, or um, do you go out to lunch instead of parking? Can you have it circle for an hour? Things like that. But that all assumes this level five, top level um, autonomy. It's, been the hardest to get to. Um, some we don't know when and how, and so it's really hard to assume. What's more interesting than the autonomy is just how connected vehicles and a lot of these ride-sharing apps have affected you know when you drive and park, and so you know that loading drop-off zones become a lot more prevalent. Uh, but it kind of really depends on the timeline for this technology. So it would be it'd be hard to say. What do you think too about? lanes, dedicated lanes for autonomous vehicles or people using level three autonomy. Is that, I'm sure, maybe something you guys are planning mm -hmm. for, too? We are. Vehicle platooning, especially mm -hmm. since um, the public sector has designated us as the new inland empire. Anything between the port of New York and New Jersey out to Harrisburg has better access to markets than Southern California. So we anticipate in its most conservative a doubling in, of freight traffic um, in the next quite frankly, t 10 years. Um, so one of the things that we have to figure out is how do tractor trailers, which are also, as you're well aware, heavily um, in the automation game. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we then maybe do vehicle platooning on shoulders, especially as we continue to widen out Route 22, look at ways to more efficiently reduce congestion um, on I-78 and those sorts of things? Yeah. So the vehicle platooning has been kind of what promises most of the benefits from automation, right? If that the car's got faster reaction time, it can be closer to the car in front of it, and then you start, especially for trucking, seeing you know aerodynamic benefits, things like that. But that's heavily dependent on this vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications aspect. Um, but it also could be closer than we think, because some of the other um, applications being tried is the first truck has a driver in it, maybe the the you know, the following five don't, and it kind of like learns and follows. And so it kind of really depends on, you know, can we, do we have the infrastructure to do that and support that? And, you know, in Atlanta, we've got, you know, construction all the time for our existing lanes. I couldn't even imagine where we would put uh, dedicated um, lanes, but that's something that would be very, very expensive. And so I think a lot of the approaches are trying not relying um, or at least not assuming that the infrastructure would change and trying to ma make these systems um, for the current infrastructure. And so be interesting. That's a good question. Thank you. All right. Anybody else have anything? Um, most of the systems you talked about are in general consumer cars and automation basically for laypersons, people who don't have a whole lot of training. Uh, previous systems you discussed, like in airliners and all, are mostly highly trained pilots, people who have a lot of interaction with this over a long period of time before they really get into it and use it on a daily basis. Can you think of any other automation systems that were designed around the layperson, and can you describe their adoption rates? Hmm. So there's there's a reason there's so much training for pilots. 
Um, and what's interesting is, you know, FAA procedures, their rule books, their checklists are followed every single time. We haven't really tried anything widespread, you know, free, free use like this before. So it's very hard to identify automated systems that have been implemented and have worked like this. And so from the first version of the Tesla autopilot system, you started seeing videos on YouTube of people just doing crazy stuff with it. And so it's like, how do you prevent that kind of um, behavior, right? And how do you limit it? And I think that's one of the things that has been developed uh, over time. So when Tesla first rolled out autopilot, um, it was supposed to be just for the highway. And people were trying it everywhere. And um, when it does that, it disengages and it tells you to put your hands back on the wheel. At first, it lets you do that. And now it's got rules built into it to where, you know, if you make it disengage three times, you know, you can't put it back on until the car, you have to stop the car and hit it in park. And so, you know, building rules into the logic, but it really requires experience of knowing, you know, where the limits are and how to keep people, you know, from doing that. And so one of the things with level four autonomy is this geofencing. And so it will only work in these areas. And so if it's meant for highway use, you know, could we map where that is and say, you know, you can't use this feature when you're not on a highway, um, especially city centers, things like that. And so that's just, it's, it's a learning thing. So Speaking of how worried is the industry about hackers or autonomy tuners, you know, making it a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more dangerous. So, you know, I can go drift my Tesla. Is that, you know, a valid concern? So there's been a lot of talk with, um, definitely security and these, especially when we have vehicle to vehicle communications. And surprisingly, there hasn't been a lot and it's, you know, we're aware of it, but there hasn't been a lot of, you know, kind of scare for that yet. Now, when this comes out, we could see a completely different thing, but so far it's been all right. Yeah, because we come from a culture of like tinkerers, mm -hmm. you know, all the way back to like the 30s, building your own cars, taking in and making it your own. So going in and just pre-programming it to kind of make it your own, um, make it a little bit more, a little faster, you know, get that zero to uh, 60 mm -hmm. down to sub two seconds eventually, even though it takes all your power, but hey, I did it. Yeah. So that kind of kind of really depends on the manufacturer's model, and so um, you know, could you, you know, will there be like tune-up shops where you can do it's all software to improve that, right? Um, or is it more centrally controlled? So one example of that um, for the Tesla P100D in ludicrous mode, which gives you the really fast zero to sixty. Um, once you do that five hundred times, or if you do it too often that feature is disabled from Tesla. And so it does that to protect uh, the integrity of the battery. So that fast kind of draining over time, if you do it a lot, um, you know, the batteries lose um, performance over time. So, you know, Tesla locked you out from doing that. And people got mad. Um, and so now, now when you do that, it warns you what you're doing, uh, but they let you. If you want to ruin your batteries, go ahead. And so it kind of, you know, that is very centrally controlled. The vehicles are kind of r reporting back. And I think, you know, that's kind of the backbone of getting the data in the first place. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, if we could have a distinction between reporting back and what is allowed and not allowed. And I think that is an excellent area for, you know, marketing and brands where they can have a strong, you know, impact on how this works. So far, very interesting, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, my name is Herb Singe from Hillside, New Jersey. Um, I'm an old car collector. Um, first thing, when you're talking about with the Tesla just now, that's kind of like going from the Airbus 
strategy to the Boeing strategy. Tesla mm-hmm. did kind of you know, said right. Given, all right, cool. Um, I'm an old car collector. First of all, you said tinkers from the 30s. They tinkered with cars 1890s. You've got a native here, you know, in the th- uh, in the collection. They started tinkering cars way before that. Whatever. Okay. Um, but I. I, I you know, how do we, uh, is there any way to adapt some of this technology so I can adapt it and put on my 1906 car? That maybe I wouldn't want to do it because it's too much fun to drive the 1906 car, but is that, are they talking about anything like that at all, at all, you know, about, you know, retrofitting, you know, vehicles, you know, or is there a certain level, you know, you can retrofit, you know, I mean, retrofitting a 1930s vehicle probably is much different than retrofitting a 1980s vehicle. Right. This computer in the 80s vehicle probably is worthless to your, your, you know, your principles. Yeah, so there's a very large company, uh, Comma AI, and their whole game is this add-on, Sensor Suite. Um, so it's, you know, they're working on it. It's not out yet. They're still testing it and building it. But the idea is that it is a series of cameras and sensors you can install in your vehicle with their software logic that would kind of retrofit. You don't have to have a whole new car to do that. So that's definitely um, one of the big approaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, but it, so they do all the 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 vision cameras like the Tesla does. You know, they will mount into your existing rearview mirror rather than having to buy a new car. And you know, there's things with um, changing like the pedal actuators to have it you know do that with your steering. But it's it's totally possible from a hardware standpoint. And so you know, okay, getting on a major highway, uh, people really think that you sh- you have to yield. There's times you can't yield to let them on. Okay. And there's times you may not have enough power to get over. How would this type of vehicle handle that? I'm coming down a ramp and I can't get over. How would it handle that? Would it stop? How would it merge? Is what I'm saying. How would it merge? Start figuring out. Yeah. You know, the interaction between humans. You know, I make that decision. Do I let you merge? Do I not let you merge? Mm -hmm. Um, you know. Suppose I don't let you merge. Mm -hmm. Are you going to stop? Yeah. So is that something they're thinking about, you know, in the industry and building into these systems yet? Yeah. And so one of the interesting things is also most people aren't doing 65 in those lanes, right? And so if you're, and when they are, you know, it's, it's slowing things down. So, you know, how does, how does it change the traffic patterns merging onto the highway? Um, when you get down to the speed, when that's not how a lot of the people drive. Um, and how does it, you know, I think a lot of times, the, the reason manufacturers are advocating for this is safety. So right now they're defaulting to it'll stop, it'll let you in and things like that. Um, and I think eventually when we start getting these, you know, better production, I think we'll start to see that's really annoying. Um, and it starts getting, so I think it'll, it'll take teasing out, you know, when it doesn't let you do that and why maybe different you, driving modes you can set it in or, you know, a lot of times when we talk about again, Boeing versus Airbus, we call it managing by exception um, or consent. And so one of the things is, for example, it'll let the car in unless you tell it not to do it. That's one one way to approach it. Um, another way would be it asks you if you want to let the car in and you say yes or no. And so, um, yeah, that would, you know, could get, yeah. So one has a lot higher workload, you know, you don't want to be clicking no, 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 no every single time. Um, but you're also way more aware of what the car's about to do. And so I think as we start seeing these developed, I think a lot of these questions will become easier to answer when we see how, how people use them and you know, how often you have to interact with it and what it does. Yeah. It would seem to me that organizations like uh, UPS, FedEx would 
be investing a lot in commercial vehicles first, and that kind of ties in with the aircraft industry, um, you know, training their drivers, you know, so they're not lay people. And it seems to be, you know, just from efficiencies, costs, everything, and even to the extent of just other commercial. I think, to my perspective, I think business is going to be a bigger adapter of this initially and spend the money on it. What are your thoughts along those lines? Absolutely. So a lot of UPS is a good example, Amazon. I think a lot of um, distribution networks are thinking about how this solves the last mile problem. And so already uh, UPS has been prototyping a new design of their trucks. And the idea is to where the, the roof opens up in the back and they could load up four to six drones. And so then the driver stays in the truck. And then, you know, you're using that as a base. So it's not just autonomous vehicles, right? It's combining that with more of like a um, UAV flying object. So, yes, they absolutely are thinking about, you know, how can this improve efficiency? Um, so that's one. Another one is these, the little pizza delivery robots, right, that can go on, like, sidewalks, things like that, maybe not even use the streets um, to solve that. And so, yeah, I think postal service, UPS, things like that, a lot of potential. I have one other question um, or one other comment. Um, 35 years ago, there was a Clint Eastwood movie, I think, called Foxfire or something about he'd wear this helmet and it would read his thoughts and the plane would mm-hmm. go that way. Is there any thoughts to some kind of a, you know, wearing goggles, reality goggles or wearing a, something like that and doing that and having it, you know, so you don't have to physically disturb it. But if a situation comes up, you can, you know, oh my God, there's an accident. And you can, you know, of course, I realize maybe radar and the car, computer's faster than you, but, you know, the human ha- might have some positives with that. Is there any, any, anything like that being there's, looked at? There's some work being done with like gesture control um, and starting systems that way. And when we start talking about projections, um, a lot of that same same concept, but projected onto the windshield itself. And so um, some of the Mercedes self-driving concepts, uh, there's a lot of things you can project around. So it becomes very interesting. It's kind of like adding a layer of what you see through your windshield. It's not just what is there, but also what the car sees. You know, it could give you other information. So there is work being done in, in that direction. Um, I don't know if any of them are talking about head-mounted displays. That's That'd be very interesting. So, you know, you, you do see that in in airplanes. And so it would kind of depend. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. Just want to uh, thank you all for coming out today. Hope you uh, enjoyed this, learned a little bit. And uh, thank you, Dr. Pop, for uh, stealing us with all your autonomous knowledge. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for all the people who came out to our first live event. Way more people showed up than we could have have hoped for. For more information about the museum, visit americaonwheels.org. Show notes from this podcast will be found at americaonwheels.org backslash podcast. And to contact and learn more about Dr. Pop, you can find him by searching for Vlad Pop, P-O-P, on linkedin.com. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed our first episode. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation, creation. Steve Mittman social media.com. Dot com. Dot com. Dot com.